Zechariah chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. This is actually the third section of Zechariah that we will begin the third major section. This will be the last of them. This consists of uh, chapters 9 through 14. The first six chapters took place in the second year of Darius, and they contained Zechariah's eight visions. This took place two, uh, seven and eight took place two years later, and that uh, came from the question that came from the delegation from Bethel. But 9 through 14, it is estimated that perhaps 40 to 50 years after chapter 8, we pick up with chapter 9. So we, you can't just flow from 8 to 9 and think that everything is the same. We've had 40 to 50 years go on by. Zechariah is now an old man. Israel is still weak and vulnerable. They're still under foreign domination. Nehemiah has not yet returned to build the walls of Jerusalem. They still have some very powerful and aggressive neighbors. And they are still considered to be a weak remnant. So the people are worried. What happens if our neighbors attack? What if the temple that we worked so hard to build gets destroyed? What if they invaded us and carried us off? So the fear for the future was very much in their minds when this prophecy or this word from the Lord is sent to them. And so these messages in chapters 9 through 14 are delivered in this backdrop. They consist of two burdens. The first burden is from chapter 9 through chapter 11 and it focuses on Israel's coming king. The second burden is chapters 12 through 14 and it focuses on Israel's coming comfort. So these are the things that occur here. But here in chapter 9, we're just going to take on chapter 9 tonight. And we will find that there is a hidden prophecy found in the first eight verses of Zechariah. It seems to predict something not likely to be known until after the prophecy has been fulfilled. A lot of times prophecy is built that way. You have to know the prophecy because many times we won't know all that the prophecy is pointing towards until after it is done. So we want to take a look at this. Then the first section we're going to deal with is this first vision. So we have some slides for you to take a look at that will be coming up on the screen. And a little bit of history we have to go back on through. Let's begin at verse 1. The burden of the, of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, its resting place, for the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. Also against Hamath, which borders on it, and against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, for Tyre built herself a tower, heaped up silver like the dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the sea, and she will be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it in fear. Gaza also shall be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines, and I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abominations from between his teeth. But he who remains, even he shall be for our God, and there shall be like a leader in Judah. And Ekron like a Jebusite, I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns." No more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes. 
Now, the land of Hadrach, this is the only mention of it in the Bible. It seems to be an area that is north of Lebanon. We don't even find this reference in secular writing. So this is basically the only place where we see it. And uh, we have a map that we can pull up. We can pull up the first first map for us. We'll, we'll show you this. I want to... Uh, that is not the first one. I need the one that was for the land of Hadrach. That's the route. The, the route that we'll look at. Uh, there was one I gave you, the, second, one, the first one of the two I sent you a second. That is the one, yes, okay. So what I want you to see, the land of Hadrach, it seems to be this area over here north of Damascus, and this would be mostly made up of Syria. What is uh, interesting is when Alexander came by to, uh, to conquer, right up here, in this little cutout section that doesn't quite seem to be Syria, but seems like it's part of Turkey and the coloring of the map. That little spot right there is the battle, I believe it was the Battle of Asus. And uh, that is actually Darius III. That is his first military loss. And he lost to a greatly undermanned Alexandrian army. They, uh, they outdid it. Came real close to handing Alexander a defeat before Alexander really got started. Uh, things just kind of broke and went in Alexander's favor, and then it turned out to be more of a slaughter of, the, of Darius's forces. And I believe in the end, uh, Alexander only lost about 450, 450, 500 men out of the whole thing. There's about 4,000 that were wounded, but he did not lose many. He was, he was basically doing all this. His army consisted of 40,000 soldiers and about, I think about 6,000 uh, cavalry. And he uh, did a lot of damage with that. But anyway, this is, this is where Damascus is. So if you go on back here and you look at this, this part, it talks about Damascus, its resting place, and also Hamath, which borders on it. And Hamath is right up here. Now, I said this whole thing is, go on to our second map here. We may come back to that one, but go on to our second map. What I want you to see here is the prophecy that may be buried or hidden here is this. The path that Alexander took when he conquered the world. He started out over here in Macedonia, and he came walking up here. He had a victory over the Persian army that did not consist of Darius the king, but one of his governors over the area, for which they won. And they continued to march on over here and uh, made, made some other areas of some conquerors. Uh, Darius joined his forces up because before he didn't think Alexander was much to be much of a force to be reckoned with. He didn't uh, really care too much about him. But when he, Alexander put himself on the map, we got to stop this guy. Darius came out with his forces and met him in that little spot I, I showed you at. Darius lost, almost lost his life out of it too and was able to escape. Uh, kind of ran like a coward. His men didn't really like that too much. But that's uh, he fled over there. Instead of, go back to our first map. This is this is the route that Alexander took. I want you to see this. So his route is going to go down over this way. And we'll take a little bit more look at that in a little bit. When Alexander comes down, he has this battle of Asus. His right-hand man, uh, Parmenion, I think it was his name. That it, That was his father's most trusted general. And it also became his. Right after this battle of Asus, he came with his own, his own group. He came down to Damascus overnight and fought Damascus and conquered it. So Damascus came over in here. 
That's important for you to see this in this because most of the routes I was seeing that showed Alexander's route seemed to indicate that Alexander went down over here, came along the coast, down into Egypt, and then came back up and hit Damascus. So I did a whole lot of research. I was reading so many articles on this thing. When was Damascus uh, conquered? And there was not a whole lot written on it. In fact, there is less written on his visit to Israel than his visit to Damascus. Uh, really, there was only one historian that covered his visit to Israel because no one considered it to be significant at all. So there were other battles that he did, but not all of them were considered to be big ones, and so they just weren't they weren't covered. Tyre was a big one. They covered that, but they didn't really cover much in the one, one he had with Sidon and the Philistine cities, so forth. But I want you to see this because what happens is, well, if we're looking at this, the Lord is saying the land of Hadrach, which would be this area north up here, coming down over here to Damascus and the city that was north of it, and then coming down over here, these are where the Philistine cities are. And, and then he mentions, after the Philistine cities, he mentions Judah. This is one of the reasons I spent so much time. Go to the third map, the, the third slide, number two. In it, and we may jump right over. This is the, the schematic of the big route, but I actually cut this off because I just want us to take a look at this section here. So go to the next one. I believe it's 2A. This over here, this is the big battle we told you about with Darius. He goes from here. You see that in this map, they don't even put Damascus in here. And it looks like from this map, they're coming up over here into Jerusalem. And that's coming up on the way back. So this was throwing me off on this. I wanted to make sure that I was giving this to you right. This prophecy that he gives, he is given a, a destruction on the cities that are around Israel. And these are some of the cities that are giving them fits, that are keeping them up at night, that they're wondering what's going to happen to us when these, if these guys decide to come out here and get us. If the Phoenician cities decide to come out here and get us. If the Philistines decide to come over here and get us. If Damascus decides to come down and to attack us, what are we going to do? We don't have any way to defend ourselves. We don't even have a walled city. And our precious temple that we spent so much time building is going to be destroyed. They are worried about these things. And so 40 or 50 years after Zechariah began his ministry, this is what we're going on. And this is what he's talking about. The order in which... Alexander came down and conquered is the exact order that is given here in the ninth chapter of Zechariah. It is given in the order for which he went. And city after city that he had gone to. So that's why I say it's a hidden prophecy. We don't really see a prophetic uttering that this is going to be one conqueror who comes down. He just predicts the fate that all these folks are going to be destroyed. But after it is completed, we find out they were destroyed in the order in which God gave them. And then Judah is put there in the end. Now most historians don't even encounter, don't even list Alexander's encounter with uh, Jerusalem. There's only one who really gave it any, any in-depth focus to it. And I'll give you some of that as we go on down here. But let's, let's uh, go on to, give me the next slide. I think I may need that one. Yeah, it's not going to give us a whole lot of, you can go back to the other one before. We'll come back in this one, and we have one other one as well. So let's, uh, let me just, we already read the scriptures. They already put it up on the screen. I want you to be able to see this over, over here as we're reading these. So I'm just going to read these for you. You're not going to see it up on the screen. 
So Damascus, its resting place for the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. The eyes of Israel are on the Lord at this particular time when that verse is given and Damascus is mentioned. Damascus again was conquered the night, the day after uh, the big battle over here in uh, Asus. And so all the world was watching this battle because Darius controlled the world. He was the ruler of all this area down here, including Egypt. So all the world is watching this battle, and Darius loses. And Alexander is now uh, now spun. Now, if you are Alexander, your goal is to dethrone the Persian army. And you just defeated Darius and his army, and he's on the run. What would you do? You would pursue him. That And he is a fantastic... There is probably no better general in history, especially if you ever do some reading on the battles of what he did and what he did with so few men. There's, I don't, you can make a case for a couple of them, but I, in my opinion, he's probably the greatest general that ever existed. Instead of pursuing him over here, which is what you would do as a general, and just from a pride standpoint, you would think, I'm going to go out there and knock this guy out. He doesn't. He does something different. And he dips down here to the south and he lets Darius go and Darius is able to go and regroup and they will regroup for another big battle. He could have knocked this out. He could have just pursued him and not had this go on. But he doesn't do it. He takes this route and he goes down here and he hits the the Phoenician cities who are not involved in this, this part over here. He hits the Phoenician cities and all that is mentioned there is Tyre. Sidon is mentioned but apparently they either didn't put much of a fight or just surrendered when he came. And Tyre, well, actually there was, uh, there was more, uh, I think I gave them in your outline there, there's about four other Phoenician cities and they all just seemed to kind of melt at his presence. But Tyre did not. Tyre put up the fight. And we've gone over that battle. We've gone over the great prediction that Ezekiel gave of this thing. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that here tonight. But he comes down here to, to Tyre. He has a seven-month siege on the city of Tyre. That gives Darius seven more months. Seven months he spends on this, this city, on this siege. And then he goes from here and he hits the, the um, cities of Philistia. Now, one of the things that he gained when he came down this way, and there's a reason why I'm giving you all this. I want you to see some of the things he was up against because it's going to make sense when we get here to the end. There's something really important you need to see here at the end, but you've got to understand this, this and what went on to his thinking up until then. So he comes down to Tyre. The problem with Tyre is Tyre has a very strong navy. Very strong navy. And it's actually in the employ of uh, Darius. All the Phoenician navies are in the employ of Darius. When the four other cities of Phoenicia uh, surrendered to Alexander, he also got their navies, but their navies were not around at the time. While this siege is going on in Tyre, the navies returned to their port city. When they returned to the port city and they found that the port city was now subject to Alexander, not to Darius, they also became subject to Alexander and not Darius. So now, suddenly, Alexander has a navy. He didn't have one before. But now he's got a navy. Which helped him because one of the things that Tyre was doing was their navy was causing him fits for what he wanted to do. Now he's got a navy, so he brought that navy over and used it to blockade Tyre into their area so that they couldn't use their navy against him. 
and then he was able to successfully build the peninsula out there and attack the city and tore it down and so forth. By comparison, if I get these years right, Nebuchadnezzar besieged this city for 13 years and did not win. The um, Assyria besieged it for five years and did not win. He conquered it in seven months. After he does this, he goes down to the Philistine cities. Now, before he goes down there, while he's over here in Tyre, I've told you this part of the story before, while he's in Tyre, he asked for some of the neighboring cities to, to help him. Jerusalem was one of them. He asked for Jerusalem's help. And I got a little more insight on what Jerusalem said in, the, in this particular thing. But the Samaritans jumped at the opportunity. And the Samaritans sent him armies. And they sent him all the forces that they could. And so did the Phoenician cities that were up over here. So they all sent help. But keep in mind the Samaritans, uh, Sanballat, I believe, was the uh, commander's name. And he sent armies over there. And I believe Sanballat himself went. And so they're all fighting to help Tyre. Israel does not send anyone and Alexander is mad. He is angry that Israel would not send anyone. Now here's the reason that Israel didn't. Persia is responsible for financing and helping build the temple. Now Darius III was not the Darius that we ran into who authorized it. That was Darius I. Darius III is is, uh, some years after that. But they still feel an obligation. And they gave their word that said, we will not fight against the, um, uh, the, the Persians. We won't, we won't do that. So they won't send any, any help to Alexander. Alexander is mad. While this is going on, he's telling the man, when we get over to Jerusalem, you guys can just tear the city apart. This particularly ministered to the people of, take a guess, Samaria. Because they hate the Jews. And you know from the stories we read already in Ezra and so forth, they hate the Jews. They want them dead. And now we're going to be authorized to kill them. Phoenicians were also looking forward to this. But of all the groups of men that were coming, the, the, uh, the Samaritans were the group that we can't wait to get in there. We are going to finally rid ourselves of this Jewish nation and we are going to wipe out every Jew that is there. Instead of going from here to Jerusalem, they go down here and they go over to the, to the Philistine cities. There are five lords of the Philistines. Remember that from your Old Testament? Except one is missing. One is not in the, in the list of, of uh, Philistine cities or places of which Alexander attacked because in Second Chronicles, and I put that reference in your outline for you, in Second Chronicles, he was, uh, that fifth lord was wiped out. There are now only four. And those four are listed here in this, this passage with uh, Ekron and Ashdod and Gath and so forth. In particular, it mentions Gath. Gath, it says the king will be killed. Now, here's how it played out. When Alexander came on down here, the first of those uh, Philistine cities didn't put up much of a fight or didn't put up any fight at all. But when he came to Gaza, Gaza put up a fight. And he went on, and I've, I've seen printed two different times for this. I've seen it was a two-month siege, and I've seen that it was a five-month siege. I don't know which one was right, because both speak of it with great authority. 
but it was either a two-month siege or a five-month siege on the city of Gaza. He had a seven-month siege against Tyre, and that was far more formidable than, than Gaza was. But anyway, the particular king that was there uh, put up a great fight, and Alexander usually likes it when somebody puts up a good fight and they're brave. He doesn't get mad, but this guy made him mad. This guy made him angry, uh, the way that he was, the way he carried himself, and when he finally was defeated, he wouldn't bow down to Alexander. He refused. And he just defied him the whole time. So what he did was, he followed after Achilles. How many remember what Achilles did when uh, during the battle, that, uh, his famous battle, and he had beaten the uh, prince of Tyre, uh, not Tyre, well, um, oh, come on, what is the name of this? Troy. Troy, prince of Troy. Remember, I think they put it in the movie, heard something about that. Uh, he tied him to the back of a chariot and dragged him around the city until he was dead. Alexander does the exact same thing with the king of Gaza. But he took the, the, uh, the chains and he put them right through his ankles so that they were caught up in the bone and dragged them through until he was dead because he was that angry at with them. And so the destruction that the Bible predicts for these cities is the destruction he brought on. But Gaza was the one who had the worst of it because they put up all this fight. Now, if we can go on to the, I think the last slide maybe that I, that I gave you. This is the only one I found, and there's probably more out there. This is the only one I found in the looking that I did that shows this little detour because none of the other ones showed it. Alexander is coming up over here. This is the Battle of Asus. Comes on down here to Tyre with the, with the Phoenician cities. Goes down over here into Gaza, and then you can barely see it right there, but you can see this little loop. He goes up into Jerusalem. The way I heard this story told, I was told that he went down to Egypt and then came up to Jerusalem, but it seems from the only historian that I can see that wrote about this is after he got done with Gaza, he went up to Jerusalem with the intention of wiping Jerusalem out with the intention of completely uh, letting his men do whatever they want. What I want you to see in verse... We're still going to need that... Well, we don't really need that map up there. Uh, verse 8. I go back to verse 7. I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abomination between his teeth, but he who remains, even he shall be for our God. This is talking about the Philistines. And he said, the Philistine people will have a change of heart after this and they will, uh, they will seek after God and shall be like a leader in Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. Now that might be blind to you. What in the world does it mean that Ekron is like a Jebusite? Do you remember when David conquered the Jebusites? He didn't kill them. He incorporated them into their society. And this is what happens with Ekron. They don't get killed. They get incorporated into the society. That's what he's, he is saying here. I will camp around my house because of the army because of him who passes by and him who returns. No more shall the oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes. But in verse 8, I will camp around my house because of the army. The army is the army that came down and executed all these judgments against all these houses. That army is the army of Alexander. And so you may have heard me tell this part of the story, but I want to make sure that for those who didn't hear it, this is such an important part of history. What happened when, when he came out of Gaza and he went up to Jerusalem he, uh, with the intention of destroying Jerusalem, there was apparently a word that came to the high priest 
And the request that Alexander had sent was not to the governor of, of uh, Judea. He sent it to the high priest. And he asked of the high priest. And the high priest is the one who sent the message back. And the high priest uh, had a vision or a dream or a word that came to him. I'm not sure which exactly way that it came. And what it was, was they knew the army was coming. They knew that they had insulted him because they didn't send anybody and that they were in trouble. And so they were seeking after God, what shall we do? And the word that came to the high priest was this, open up the city. Do not close it down. Don't fight. I will fight for you. Open up the city. Have the priest dress. Have everybody dress who comes out. Everybody dresses in white garments. Have the priest dress in their attire. And you dress in your attire. And so they came out to meet the uh, Alexander. And Alexander, when he saw this afar off, he came over and he met with them. And as they got closer, instead of bringing his delegation out, Alexander said, stay here. And he went on by himself and he met with the, with the group. He got down off his horse and according to the historian, Josephus, he bowed to the high priest. They had never seen Alexander bow to anyone. So this was an, uh, very odd to them. Alexander came back and said, let's go, we're moving on. And apparently from there they went on down into Egypt. But there was no war, there was no fighting, nothing had gone on. And Parmenion was very curious about this and came to him later on because the men, what happened? Why didn't we go in there and spend? Can you imagine the faces of the, of the Samaritans who came? We were ready to wipe out the Jews and now we don't get to. And so they head on down to Egypt. And we're going to need that map again that shows us going down to Egypt. I think we can do that on, on number 2A. I think we can get there on that one. Or even three. We'll, we'll do that. So he finally asked me, he said, what happened? Why did you do this? And so he said, I didn't tell anyone this, but before we started, I had a, a vision. And a man appeared in my vision, and he told me how I would conquer the world. And he gave me the path for which we would follow. And he said, I have followed that path. The reason he did not pursue Darius was not a military decision. It was an obedient decision to the vision that he had. And the vision that he had had him going south after that battle. So that's why he came down south, even though it made probably a lot more military sense to pursue Darius and take care of this thing. He came down south, and he, and he, he went out there to do that. So he said, the person who was in my dream and told me these things that I would conquer was dressed exactly like the high priest. And I have never seen anyone dressed like that in my life, but he was dressed exactly like the high priest. So this man who was a heathen, and he, there was nothing godly about Alexander. If you look at his lifestyle, there was nothing godly about him at all. But God appeared to him in a dream and gave him the way for which he would go because God was going to use him as an instrument of judgment upon these nations that had gone against Israel. Alexander was greatly used by God, though he did not fear God because he is the one who came up with the Greek language. He is the one who taught the Greek language to the world. He is one who brought Greek thought and Greek way of life into the world, which made the way for the gospel to go through much easier because of the unity that was all around the kingdom. Even when Rome came in, Rome kept all those things in place that the Greek empire had brought in, or that Alexander had brought in. Alexander paved the way for a lot of these things, even though he was not God-fearing, and there's no way you can make a case that he was God-fearing at all. And this is what I want to show you here next. What we have happen 
Uh, in fact, pull up to map three. It shows it better than this one does. This one sh takes too many shortcuts. If you will see this over here, when Alexander came down to Egypt, Egypt did not fight. They surrendered. There was no fight. There was no battle of Egypt. Nothing went on because Egypt saw him as a liberator because they were tired of being under the Persians. They did not want to be under the Persians. So they welcomed him in. They surrendered to him. And they agreed to pay him the taxes that they were paying Darius. So now Alexander has all the taxes from all these countries coming to him instead of going to Darius. It's helping fund his battle, fund his war. They promised to build Alexandria. Here's a story about Alexandria. While they are building Alexandria, and Alexander is very much involved in building Alexandria. He is a planner. He likes to do these things. While he was all doing this, and they're running into a lot of obstacles and a lot of things that were hindering him, he leaves. He leaves the project. He goes on out over here and he makes this particular trip. And right over here, you see where it's, it says the uh, oracle. He goes to visit an oracle. That's why you know this, this, this man was not necessarily moved by the experience to worship God. He goes and he visits this oracle. No one went into the oracle with him. But apparently there were two things that were said to him. First off, it, it is said that it confirmed something that Alexander had thought. And that is that Philip is not his father. King Philip was, the, was supposed to be his father. And, um, but this oracle said, Philip is not your father. Your father is Zeus. And so he came out of there thinking that he was a god. He had a suspicion that Philip was not his father and that he was the son of a, a deity. And now this oracle came and, and of course, you know, the seeds were there. Uh, and there was a, a second thing too, and for some reason that's skipping out of my head right now. He gets those, those things and he makes his trip on back and they head on. I believe he went back to Alexandria and they finished the project, but anyway, they joined on up and they came back up through these areas and then out to pursue Darius, in which they defeated Darius. Uh, Darius actually lost the next battle and fled, still, still stayed alive, but then his men mutinied against him and killed him. So that would, uh, that would be coming up. But it says here, I will camp around my house because of the army. The Lord camped around the house of Jerusalem. And this was predicted way back here. When the word came to the high priest, the high priest had to trust the word that he got open the gates and go out and meet this army. The temptation would probably be to close the gates and try and fight them off for as long as you can. He believed the word. He went out and God showed up for him. If they had fought, if they had stayed behind, they would have disobeyed that word. Jerusalem would have been wiped out and the temple would have been done. Now you say, well, God could have fought for him. God told him what to do. God had made all these plans for when he would come back up to Jerusalem, that they would be spared. All this has been in the plan since the time Alexander, before the time Alexander took off. Israel has no idea any of this is going on. But judgment is now coming down to the south, all the south, and all their cities that they're afraid of, wiped out. They are no longer a threat. That is this prophecy that went out. This is the first order of business in this, this burden. These nations that you're afraid of now, they're coming into judgment. They're not going to be a problem for you. What Israel needs to do at this point is to take this word and believe it. It's a, I, I, I looked at the years and it's not coming to me right now. It is somewhere around 175 to 200 years 
from the time of the prophecy until the time that Alexander comes down and does this. That's a lot of years to wait, isn't it? And you can say, boy, I don't know, I would have wished the guy would have done something sooner. But nowhere in that time do these nations come and attack them or burn their temple or do any such things. They don't do it. If they would have just rested in what God said, they would not have lost any sleep. There would not have been any fear, no anxiety, no depression, no uh, disruptions in their lifestyle. If they just would have trusted that what God said was right, they would have been okay. But you see, a lot of times we don't trust what the Lord says and we take things on ourselves. Looking back, we can say God had a way for this to, to go and He had a way to spare us as well. All right, that's um, when it gets here that it's part of no more oppressors. That part seems to be future. Because right after Alexander passed by them, Rome did not. And Rome came through in 70 AD and destroyed the place and burned the temple. And, but Jesus also predicted that that was going to happen. So that part is still future. But that will, will go on. Um, let's pick up here. Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding on a colt, a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, from the horse and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, this is one of those verses I wrote down a, um, some time ago to uh, dig into this and research it some more. And we'll, we'll come out with, with some things on that, but not yet. We're not going to do that here because it will distract us too much from where we're going. Verse 9, we all know this, this famous verse. This is talking about Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, which Jesus fulfilled. But we also know that he will come in on a horse. And that is the second advent. The church is sandwiched somewhere between verse 9 and verse 10. But you read this and it all sounds like one prophecy. It just is all jumbled right together because this is prophecy is to the Jewish nation and to the Jewish people. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and, from the, and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. This is speaking of Messiah's reign and the millennial reign when he reigns over all the earth. But that's not yet. And that is coming. Because the Messiah's uh, reign was in two parts. The first part was to be as the humble king who comes as a sacrifice. And the second part where he comes as the conqueror. That part there, a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey, it seems to be a Hebrew expression, expression of speech emphasizing that the animal is purebred. I am told that in the ancient Near East, if a king came in peace, he would ride a donkey instead of a stallion. That's just something I was able to, to find. But there will be a day when he arrives on a white horse and it will not be coming in peace. He will come in, in war. The um, Verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. This is one of only two places we're going to see this phrase of the blood covenant. The other one is Exodus 24, 8. You can go look that up later on if you want to. But God is doing this not because of what they've done, but because of the blood covenant. 
I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. The waterless pit is cisterns that were empty. They were drained of water and they were often used as dungeons or prisons. The idea is that God will set the prisoners free. Can't help but see a reference to the idea of Joseph here when he was thrown into the pit. And that was a waterless pit as well. But uh, God is the one who comes and sets us free. So that's a prediction of that. Let's go on through here. 12, we won't get through the rest of these. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. Boy, we all like that one, right? Return to the stronghold. This could be a call for more people to come in from Babylon. Not everybody has come in from Babylon yet. Maybe more of you need to get going. And so return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. For I have bent Judah, my my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against the sons of Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. Then the Lord will be seen over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and go with Brolin from the south. Now Ephraim represents the whole of the northern tribes. This will be combined, so that what this is talking about with Judah being the bow, the bent bow, and Ephraim basically being the arrow, the 12 tribes are coming together against their enemies and God is going to use them as a unified 12-nation uh, group of uh, Jewish people. When you bend the bow, you get, that means you put the string on it and you load it with the arrows. In this case, the arrows would be Ephraim. Against you, sons of Greece, this is probably a reference to the Maccabean revolt against Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes means God manifest. That's what he believed he was against you sons of Greece. So the uh, main one in Daniel's vision in, in Greece, oh, I forgot to leave that part of it out, that after they made, uh, the, the after Alexander made peace with the, the high priest, the high priest actually took him in. Alexander wanted to make sacrifice to God. So they brought, came in over to the temple. He made a sacrifice unto God. And while he was there, the high priest opened up the scroll of Daniel and read to him chapter 8 which is talking about the nation of, of Greece being the goat and coming on through. Now, some people, they always aggravate me when they do this. Some people do not see Daniel as written by a prophet, but written by a historian. And they put this at such a late date that it could not be possible for this story to be true. Not that this date is beyond where they said it was written, but it was so close to it that Daniel's book, if it was written as a historical book the way that they say it was, would not have been widespread enough for this to have been a, a thing for him to come in and to open up the, the books to him. But what we do know is that in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they have uh, probably more of Daniel than any other book as far as percentage-wise, I believe it was. And so a lot of Daniel is represented in those things, which means it was older than they thought. it. Uh, that's a pretty old manuscript right there. And it had to be in widespread distribution in order for it to have been included in the scrolls for which they had. Which means it predated that even even more. So uh, these people who want to say, well, Daniel wasn't uh, a prophet, he wasn't a real person, uh, that couldn't be, and therefore discount this whole story about how God spared Judea. Uh, it's not so. One of the things that was buried in that too is that one of the things Alexander agreed to was that the Samaritans could have their own temple. And so the Samaritans built their own temple on their own land. 
And they, uh, that's some of the disagreement that you'll see when Jesus came. You guys say we should worship at this temple. We say we should worship on this mountain. Um, who's right? And that's part of the, the thing about that disagreement. Anyway, let's go on. Verse 15. The Lord of hosts will defend them. They will devour and subdue with sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if with wine. They shall be filled with blood like basins, like the corners of the altar. Now, devour gives the picture of a lion with its prey that drink its blood and devour its flesh. That's kind of what you're getting the picture of here. It should more accurately read, though, they shall tread down the stones of the sling. Not that, not, not quite the way that it is here. I'm told that the people who know Hebrew are a, bit better, a lot better than I do. Uh, they shall tread down the stones of the sling. The sling stones are the enemies. They're not Israel's. Israel's not using sling stones here. It's the enemies are throwing sling stones against them. As in the next verse, they are the stones of the crowns or the gems. They have, the comparison is the sling stones the enemies throw against you and the gem stones that you are in the crown. The sentence means that the Jews shall tread their enemies underfoot like spent sling stones which are of no account. What, what bother to you is sling stones that are on the ground? Don't bother to you at all. The ones that bother you are the ones that are in the air coming at you. But once they hit the ground, they're powerless. They're done. Another way to look at this is that their missile shall fall harmlessly to the ground. Boy, that sounds a little bit more modern, doesn't it? Verse 16, The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of His people, for they shall be like the jewels of a crown, like, lifted like a banner over His hand, and how great is its goodness, and how great its beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive, and new wine the young women. Now some see this as defense as the second advent when Messiah comes to conquer, but I think that you're going to really see the defense of Israel, Messiah coming to conquer later on in this, not so much here. But as Antiochus was a forerunner to the Christ, this deliverance could be a forerunner to the second advent. The, new, the grain and the new wine, this is an expression that is often found to show great abundance and prosperity. Great abundance and prosperity. This is what's coming. So this is, this is what he is showing them in this I want you to see. There are things coming, guys. There are things coming and you need to be aware of them. One of the things that's coming is that there is a deliverance coming for y'all. There is a deliverance against all these people that you see. I have a deliverance and it's on its way. It's coming. There is a coming king. This coming king is greater than any king that you have ever seen for any nation anywhere. There is a coming king and this king is coming here for you. Beside that, there is a coming salvation. And this salvation will bring you to a place of prosperity, a place of a blessing, a place of greatness, a place of safety. All these things are coming. So he's saying all these things are coming. There's a deliverance. There's a great king. And there is a salvation. All this is coming to you. And this is what makes this chapter very interesting for us to look at. Because our flesh tendency is to be so consumed with the present that we can't see what's ahead or believe that what God has said is indeed coming. This is our flesh. Our flesh tendency is we can consume with the here and now. All I can see is my worries, my cares, my fears, the things that are coming against me, the things that I feel, the things that I see. I am completely consumed by these things. My flesh tendency is just to completely immerse myself in these things that I see. When I do that, I cannot see the things that are coming. Israel's state right now, 
We gave it to you before. Their state is they are worried about losing their temple they worked so hard for. They are worried about losing their lives that these, pe- these nations that are around them that hate them are going to come in and they're going to attack them. They're concerned. They're worried about these things. This is the cause. This is a cause. I made sure I'd, I, I wrote this out because I want to make sure I, did, I got this. This is a cause. Brother Hagen would say this is a method of healing. Not the only method. This is a method. This is a way we can be healed. This is a cause. It is not the only cause. But it is a cause of fear, anxiety, depression, worry, strife, agitation. When we get our flesh to be so caught up and consumed with the present, it can be a cause of fears in our life. A cause of anxiety in our life. A cause of of depression. A cause of worry. A cause of strife. A cause of agitation. And the list could probably keep on going on. This is a cause for these things. These are not godly things. These are not things God wants in our life. But these are things that can come along. The enemy wants us so consumed with the direness of our situation that there's no room for faith to build on God's promises. He wants to get you completely consumed in what you face. In the financial things that are coming against you. In the physical things that are coming against you. In the mental things that are coming against you. In the people that are around you that hate you or are not being nice to you. In the things that have disappointed you in life. In the things that are not going the way that you want. He wants you to be completely consumed by these things because as long as you are consumed with your present, your eyes are not on what is coming. That's where Israel was. They were consumed with their present. Now it may start out as a small worry, but once the foothold is there, just like leaven, it begins to take over more and more until it has consumed us. It's easier to stop when they're small, but many pe- people fail to stop it when it's small simply because I've got it handled. How many of you ever felt like that? Got a little worry? Got a little anxiety? A little fear? I got it handled. I'm okay. I got it handled. But you see, you have it handled now. But it's establishing a foothold. And once it establishes a foothold, it can get bigger. Anytime a nation wants to attack another nation, they have to establish a foothold. Once they get that foothold, they begin to expand from there. Well, it's just a little beach area they got over there. We're not so concerned about that. But then that beach area became bigger. And then pretty soon a city was swallowed up. And then pretty soon two cities were swallowed up. Well, now we gotta, we got to be wondering about this. While we think we have it handled, it grows and it becomes rooted. Pretty soon it becomes more than I can handle. And its effects become more visible. When its effects become more visible, I become more hopeless. And this is when we start to see the downward spiral. I wasn't dealing with it too much. I was entertaining it. I was letting it be because it's just small. I can handle this. It's not really affecting me too much. But then it begins to grow. And my fear, my worry, my anxiety, whatever it is that's coming against me, <clears throat> it's getting to be more and more a part of my day. And I'm thinking more and more and more about this thing. Pretty soon it's consuming all my present efforts. So here's the question. How do we get out of it? It's one thing to identify. Yeah, that's where I'm at. That's where I'm facing that. That's what's going on. But how do I get out of it? So I spent some time here trying to figure out what, what is the way that we get out of this thing. Because if I, I know how to get into it, that's not helping me how I got into it. 
How do I get out of it? First thing is, refuse to believe no one cares. God or others. You have to write in most of this. I gave you a little start there. Refuse to believe that no one cares. Refuse to believe that God doesn't care. Refuse to believe that others don't care. It's not true, but our thinking, this pushes other people away. Pushes other people out. They may care, but they say, I can't help them. They just, they, they won't let me, they won't let me help them. They won't let me, they won't receive anything that I have to offer. They won't hear what I have to say. Remember the disciples? When they were facing a big problem, and they had a fear and a worry, the boat was going to sink. They came down to Jesus. Remember his words? Remember the words of the disciples of Jesus? Do you not care that we perish? Did Jesus care? Yeah, but they were convinced that he didn't. And they're not the only example. We could go through and show you other examples of this too. But I'm sure many of those are ringing in your head. The enemy will tell you this and then give you evidence to prove it. He will tell you that God doesn't care and he will give you evidence to prove how God lets you down. He will tell you that people in your life don't care and then give you evidence to prove his point. Oh yeah, they did say that. Oh, well, they were doing that. Well, don't you... I forgot all about that they had said that. He's going to give you evidence. Pretty soon we begin to refuse to believe that anyone cares. Nobody cares about me. Nobody cares about me. I have the first step I got to do if I want to get out from being under this is to refuse to believe that no one cares. When you get that thought, God does not care about you. God does care about me. God does love me. You come right after him. You get after him. When he comes after you and says, your, your family doesn't care about you. My family does care about me. And stop having your, your thoughts go that way. You have to refuse. If you want to get out from under whatever fear, anxiety, depression, worry, whatever thing, you've got to first off refuse. Now again, this is a cause. It's not the only cause. Let me make sure we emphasize that. Refuse to believe that no one cares. Because if you, refu- if you believe that no one cares, this is the beginning of your downfall into all this. Second, focus on what you can do instead of what you can't. Focus on what you can do instead of what you can't. One of the things that people fall into is, I can't do anything to change this. I can't make people like me. I can't make God move. I've prayed. I've had other people pray. Nothing I do seems to get God to move. Nothing I do seems to make people care about me. You've got to refuse first off that thought, but then you've got to focus on what can I do. You know, we've, uh, we've done this with people that are behind in their home. If they have uh, 30 piles of laundry and they're just so overwhelmed by the laundry that they don't even do laundry, they just go out and buy new clothes. And then they start getting poorer because they're buying new clothes instead of going out there and doing laundry. How do you help them? Well, you got to start doing some laundry. I can't. Do you see how much laundry there is? I can't do 30 loads of laundry today. Don't do 30 loads of laundry. Do one. Do one. Can you do one load? I can do one load. All right, well, let's just do one load of laundry today. And then the next day, well, you did one load yesterday. It worked out pretty good, right? What should you do today? Maybe I can do two loads. Right? you got to focus on what you can do. Because if you did that one load yesterday, two loads today, you're now three loads down. 
So instead of 30, you've got 27. And then you start to get enthused about this. And so maybe you start to take on three or four loads in a day. And then the next day. And then the next day. Pretty soon, all the laundry is gone. And you feel excited about this thing because you focused on what? What you can do. You got to focus on what you can do. Don't focus on what you can't. Well, I need to make $1,000 a week. Well, if that's something you can do, great. But if it can't, then what do you got to do? Well, maybe I can make $500 in a week. You got to focus on what you can do. Don't focus on what you can't do. Because if you focus on what you can't do, you end up doing nothing. So here's the second thing to get out of this. Focus on what you can do. The enemy wants you overwhelmed, so he is going to constantly get you to focus on more than you can do so that you stay overwhelmed. But first off, you're going to refuse to believe that no one cares. Secondly, you're going to focus on what you can do. That's the second step. You ready for the third step? Think on the promises of God instead of the failures of your life. Failures of your life as you see them. Think on the promises of God instead of the failures of your life. People that are overwhelmed, that are caught under these things, fears, worries, anxieties, so forth, people, they're, they're, they're thinking on their failures. Oh, I'm just no good to anybody. Oh, I'm no help to anybody. I'm just such a failure. I just haven't done anything with my life. I'm just no good. I don't even know why I'm here. I'm a lousy mom. I'm a lousy dad. I'm a lousy worker. I'm a lousy Christian. Just no good in anything I try and do. People that are in this, that are under these situations, they think they are lousy at everything. But think on the promises of God instead of the failures of your life. Philippians 4 and 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Those things about failure, they're not, they're not praiseworthy. The Word of God is telling you, don't think about them. Believe what God says. Do what God says. Refuse to believe that God doesn't care and that others don't care. Ref uh, focus on what you can do, not what you can't do. And think on the promises of God instead of the failures of your life. The enemy wants you to go out and think, this is going to kill you. You're going to die as a result of this thing. What's God's Word tell you? It doesn't tell you you're going to die. It tells you what? I'm your Redeemer. I'm your Deliverer. This is what he's telling the children of Israel here. They're thinking, we're going to die. Damascus is going to come. They're going to, they're going to raid us. The Samaritans are going to come. The Phoenicians are going to come. The Philistines are going to come. They're going to come. They're going to burn our temple. They're thinking on these things. Don't think on those things. He's giving them words. I'm your deliverer. I'm standing guard on, on you. It's all right. Think on those things. The enemy wants you to not think on those things. He wants you to think on others. So think on the promises of God instead of the failures of your life. Ready for number four? So, instead of just gleaning. Now, I purposely didn't say harvest. Because harvest is the result of sowing and it implies that there's a surplus that comes in. Most people in this, this state of mind are not harvesting. They are gleaning. You know what gleaning is? Cleaning is going up behind the people that are harvesting to pick up whatever scraps that are left. How rich do you get off cleaning? 
You do not get rich. What do you do? Barely make it by. People that are in this way of thinking barely make it by. They're gleaning. I'm just trying to get enough hope to get me through today. I'm just trying to get enough enthusiasm to get me out of bed. They're gleaning. I'm trying to get just enough to get by. But you got to get out of the area of gleaning and get into the area of sowing. Do you remember the woman that impressed Jesus the most with her offering? Only one woman in the Word, Word of God ever impressed Jesus with an offering. In fact, only one person that we know of in the Word of God ever impressed Jesus with an offering. And Jesus sat back and watched them. He saw a lot of people give an offering. Only one person impressed them. Remember how much he gave? Two mites. A little tiny bit. Hardly anything. But Jesus said, you see that? She gave all she had out of her poverty. These guys, they gave out of their abundance. She gave out of her poverty. Someone pointed it out to me, and I forget by now who it was, but somebody pointed it out to me. Jesus never went over to her and said, you need this more than the temple does. Take it back. He let her leave. Why? Because it's important to sell. It was important for her to sell. It's important for us to sow. Sow instead of just gleaning. This woman had very little, but she found something to sow. That's what we need to do. I need to find something to sow. What have you got? Well, if all you think about is your failures, you're not going to have a whole lot to give sow, are you? But if you think on the promises of God, if you change the way that you think, if you focus on things that you can do, if you, if you change this, if you refuse to believe that people don't care, you're going to have something to sow. Father God, what do I have for today? Remember Peter and John at the temple, at the beautiful gate? All right, I don't got this, but what I do have, I give you. Find out what you got and go out there and sow it. Spend time in the Word in the morning. God, I'm not here for just me. Give me something that I can sow into someone else. And then once you get it, go out there and start looking. You're walking around the Walmart. You are on the prowl. I've got something. And I'm looking for somebody to sell it. You don't have to go to the Walmart. Walk around the block. And look. Find somebody. Somebody's out there taking their garbage cans up. Look for an opportunity to sell. Because you see, when you find that opportunity, and you find that person, and you sow into them that word that God gave you, oh, I am so glad that you shared that with me today. Oh, that really helped me out. I can't believe that God sent you along here to help me with this. You just brightened my day. Now you're going home and you got more of a purpose. Why? Because you did what you could and you sowed instead of gleaned. And you changed somebody. God, you used me today. And you begin to, to get excited. Here's the last one. This is the hardest one of all. This is why it's last, because you've got to do some of those other ones before you could ever get to this stuff. You will not get to five without doing one, two, three, and four. But there's a whole lot of Christians out there that try and jump right to five. They hear, a, they hear Jesse Duplantis preach a message. i got to do that. And they jump right to five. And they fail. 
Because you cannot get to five unless you do one, two, three, and four. You ready? Expect good things, not bad. Expect good things, not bad. Because people that are caught up in that mentality we talked about, what do they think is going to happen today? Bad. Bad things. Bad things are coming. Be that, that hee-haw song. Weren't for bad luck, I have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. <laughs> Let me read some verses of Scripture here for you. Proverbs eleven twenty three. The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. Get this verse. The desire of the righteous is only good. Are you righteous? Then why is our expectation so off? But the expectation of the wicked is wrath. Do you know that if you continue to follow after a path, where you expect bad things to happen to you all the time, you are following along the path of the wicked. Proverbs thirteen twelve: Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. You go down the direction of hope deferred, you go down the direction that I'll never have anything good happen for me. That's why your heart is sick. But desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Jeremiah 29, 11, you all know this one, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. That's the plans that God has for you. The devil is trying to tell you that he has other plans. Psalm 68, 19, blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits. Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits. That's good things. Daily. Daily he does this. But the enemy has got us believing that it's scarcely that he blesses us with good things. And if you ever want to read a a section out of Lamentations, Lamentations chapter 3. Don't read Lamentations chapter 3 with the idea of this is all inspired by God and what you should do. Lamentations chapter 3, these first verses before the ones I'm going to read for you will describe the state of many Christians. If you want to go back through and read all that, but just understand, read it not, this is where I'm supposed to be. This may be where I am, but this is not where God declared. You'll you'll recognize these verses. They made them into a song. Verse 21, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The things you recall to your mind are going to give you hope, or they're going to give you depression, or they're going to give you fear and anxiety. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. I have hope through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. When I believe that God is consuming me, I believe His compassions have failed. They are new every morning. Every morning I wake up, they are brand new. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have, uh, I hope in Him. I hope in Him. If you want to change your situation and get out of all that thing of being under so much, these are five steps you can do. You got to start with the first one. First one, resist that thought that nobody cares about you. Don't give in to that. Don't bring that thing in. 
refuse to believe that no one cares. Focus on what you can do. Think on the promises of God. So, instead of gleaning, expect good things, not bad. Father, we thank you for your word. We may find ourselves in a place like the prophet was, how he described here in Lamentations, but that's not a place that we should be. We've gotten our focus off. We've gotten our eyes off. We believe the wrong things. And even though we may be hearing the word on a regular basis, if we don't change the way we think, it's not going to change our life. Your words, when they come to us, they need to change the way that we think. We need to refuse to think wrong things. I need to not focus on things that I can't change, that I can't do anything about, because I'm not focusing on the things that you're calling me to change. These are all things that we can do. These are all things that you put into our, our toolbox. And if we'll do them, we can change how we go about our day. That every morning we wake up, we wake up refreshed because we rested in the arms of our, of our God. Help us, Father, to follow after this, these things that are in your word, that if we are going under, if the enemy established a stronghold in our life through a beachhead that he started, we need to start fighting and push them back. I thank you for that your word shows us these things that we can do. I give you the praise and the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.